everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back with Ramdas here and now. And this episode is uh, very interesting. I never heard it, I know. I say to myself, how could that happen? But it did. And uh, this is interesting because it's uh, the style of the talk that he gave, which was all the way back in... Uh, 75 January 1975 it has him as his in his psychologist mode at least as to get the thing going uh, and it's around reference groups I'm going to explain what that is because it'll be good to have a handle on that before one listens to this but before I go there I do want to say, I mean, this is what, November of 2021, early November, and I'm about to suggest a phenomenal Christmas present. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable that I would even think of such a thing. Um, But uh, we have a fantastic book coming out this month. Words of Wisdom from Ramdas that was put together in a way uh, that it's an easy reference to core teachings, key teachings, of course. Uh, it, it's done so that it's very short uh, uh, quotes from Ramdas. Now, some of it's not that short. Some of them are like a couple of paragraphs or more. But uh, I do love the way it was put together so that uh, you can just turn to a section and a topic that needs attention or that you feel could use some attention. So it's one of those books you just have on the coffee table uh, that you can just turn to uh, and even set your day. And uh, so we are now taking pre-orders, which all of this, of course, goes a long way to help support everything that we do. But if you just go to ramdas.org slash shop, just go to the ramdas.org shop and uh, you will be able to pre-order the book, which does a lot because it helps in terms of getting uh, more interest from people like... uh, booksellers and so on, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all of that, they will make it look, uh, make it easier for people who file into the stores to find the book. So, so that helps. Words of wisdom from Ramdas, And uh, let us now go into, <laughs> let us pray. Uh, <laughs> Uh, really, let us pray. Ramdas t- reference groups are groups that an individual aden- identifies with. So it's a family group, it's a religious group, it's a business group, it's a it's a union, a bowling group, a, na- a national group. Now we are all very familiar, are we not, with the various groups that um, exist, and uh, it has become tribal groups, uh, even in our era. Uh, as it is now, of course, with COVID and all of the different protocols and the solutions, including vaccination, 
uh, have, as we well know in this country, uh, it's a very, very prominent split. There's the anti-vaxxers and then there's the pro-vaxxers. And just look at how we think about each other. It's pretty far out. And um, so he talks about us and them. And our us and them, of course, it, it's, it's so evident. It's like worldwide evident this is going on everywhere. Although I think in the United States, there's even a much sharper divide. And... Uh, of course, that includes everything that's going on politically, socially, uh, environmentally. Uh, and all of this is based on reference groups. And uh, so I think that uh, at, at some point, we really do have to recognize this. I mean, we are recognizing it, and we're, there's a bit of malaise in my mind going on about just not, how, not being able to even think of how we can approach each other. And it feels like such a, a, a dark wall. Just uh, when, when this whole thing with the, with the... I mean, of course, the political thing, it seems more obvious, but with the COVID thing where people taking these kinds of very intractable stands around getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated, uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very tough situation. And Ramdas talks about, and, and this is key, to, uh, he kind of loosens up out of the, um, his professorial. That's why this thing is really far out. I've never heard him be, quote-unquote, Richard Alpert. As Ramdas, <laughs> defining you know the reference groups, defining the us and thems, and then finally, uh, not finally, but at some point, and which is what we we are all realizing that the level of which that we focus on individual differences, and just how do we categorize that? Just walking down the street, uh, so the change that can happen is one gets behind that usual mind-judgmental perspective to a new identity which sees all as souls, which Ramdas accomplished in this life, you know? I mean, he said, he never, he would always say, I'm not a guru, I am just like everyone working uh, on myself to become free, and, you know, some of us are a little further along the road. And he obviously had gotten to a point where he actually, uh, it was experiential loving everyone. And um, so at that point, it's just a soul meeting ground in which we see each other. And we see the packages that we are displaying. Uh, what did uh, Jack Cornfield and Ramdas? we were at a retreat in Maui, uh, I think they refer to that package as a meat hanger. Uh, is that it? I wonder if I have that right. It sounds just about right, though. The package just is just that. And the, the veil, once you are meeting on soul ground, the veil then is very, very thin. 
So then, so he talks a lot also about uh, different spiritual communities that got together, communities that come along with a, a, a very strong central purpose and people unite around it because of their common interest in that purpose. And then he talked about things like in the back in the day in the seventies, late sixties, seventies. There was a thing called the farm. I th- where were they in the south somewhere, Georgia maybe, Tennessee. Uh, Steve Gaskin. I'm not sure where they're at right now, but Ramdas talked about it. this. Is of course 1975, and they had a huge experiment of being uh, inclusive and not it not being focused around any one central religious or spiritual figure or teaching. And so he talks a lot about that, and uh, and so it reminded me of what we're doing at Love Serve Remember Foundation. Ramdas is gone almost two years now, and how we are interacting the way that, as much as we can, feel how he interacted with all of this. There was no isms. Yes, of course, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba was the inspiration for everything for for those of us that were in India and how Ramdas shared that with us. And uh, of course that's there, but that that uh, is only representative of that which is part of the complete interconnection of everything. And that's what Maharaji is, that unconditional love connector that is in all of us. And when one identifies, Ram, as Ramdas says, this, this reference group, this is the soul reference, it will be the Ramdas soul reference group, the community of the spirit, then where one is in physical time and space, who one is with, whatever the circumstances may be, uh, becomes less and less relevant. And uh, this is the trick uh, to move ourselves into a reference group, which is way more inclusive because it's based on who we are behind all of the personality and so on. So this is an amazing uh, talk, actually. Um, Reference groups and the spiritual community. So don't forget about the new Ramdas book, Words of Wisdom. And uh, go to ramdas.org slash shop. I think shop or store, shop, I think. You'll find it. And just uh, pre-order it. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll be a wonderful thing. To pre- you can pre-order a few copies that'll come for Christmas. Uh, and w- that will be for sure happening. Tanya will take care and make sure everybody gets their books well before Christmas and you could even, you know, give them as presents. This is a great present. So just go, you can go check it out anyhow. And again, this is Ram Das here and now on the Be Here Now Network. Go to beherenownetwork.com and... Boy, there's a lot of great podcasts. And then we have a new one coming up next week uh, that uh, is Madison Margolin, who is going to, st- who is starting for us a psychedelic podcast investigating psychedelics and therapy and everything that's happening in that area, which is really quite powerful these days. See you next week. 
there is a term in psychology and sociology called reference group. It refers to the group with which an individual identifies as, uh, as perhaps the basic group. For example, the family is such a reference group for many, and their primary identification is with the family. For others, their religion is a basic reference group. Or their club, maybe the bowling club, is the basic reference group. And they generally think of themselves as members of the bowling club, who also work, etc. Or maybe a union, or a uh, national organization, or a nation. And now, as the world has gotten smaller and smaller through the advent of jet transportation and the television media, radio media, we come to what McLuhan describes as the global village. And for some of us now, the reference group is uh, all of humanity. Uh, and I'm sure it is obvious to you when you reflect upon it that the nature of one's reference group has a lot to do with how you deal with a variety of social and economic problems in the world around you. If your reference group is very small, then only within that group is it us and the rest of the universe is them. And there is certainly a certain appropriate behavior regarding thems which is different from that regarding us's. On the other hand, if your reference group includes all of humanity, then there is no them, at least not in the human kingdom, so that it is difficult to impose various economic or moral uh, discriminations when there is only us. In general, uh, governments function on the basis of the nation being the basic reference group and other countries being them, so that if a, uh, a single human being happens to be a member of one country versus another, we justify uh, a differential treatment so that we feed everybody in our country, but if uh, uh, literally millions are starving to death this year in uh, Africa and Bangladesh and India, uh, we feel somewhat less connected with them, at least from a government point of view, because they are them, not us. Uh, those of us that have uh, been awakened to our global identity experience a tremendous sense of frustration with the uh, policies of a government which has this different kind of frame of reference. Now, within uh, these reference groups, the reasons for identifying with a group vary. Uh, we may join a living group, for example, rent a large house in the city or go into an apartment community, uh, specifically for economic reasons, because it's cheaper to live together than apart. That is a very different kind of a community than one that has come together for, uh, say, artistic appreciation. For example, a community of artists, uh, or uh, for spiritual growth.
which might be called a spiritual community. Uh, the present communities that exist in uh, the United States, the younger communities, I'm not talking about the uh, Quaker and Shaker uh, communities and so on that have been existing, the Adamites and so on, that have been existing for a long time in this country, but the more recent communal endeavors have uh, a, I think, a very uh, fruitful and useful confusion as to their basic identity. There are very few of these communities that are single-purposed and therefore have such a definite uh, function that they attract only people who share a single goal. Examples of this uh, very clearly defined uh, communal game would be, uh, say, a Benedictine monastery or a, uh, a Zen center. The Zen center, say, at Tassajari or something like that. But most of the communes that are in the uh, countrysides uh, on the east coast or the west coast or uh, now spreading really throughout the country and with concentrations, say, in uh, Colorado and New Mexico and Arizona and the Northwest and um, New York State and so on. Um, these communes have a, a, an economic justification which is very comparable to uh, the frontier mentality um, that existed in this country uh, not so many years ago. Uh, and in addition to the economic justification, uh, they, many of them have a spiritual justification as well. And they are loosely organized around a single spiritual uh, program or a much more uh, eclectic uh, type of spiritual uh, feasting. <laughs> and the communities that have a single spiritual a format or connection, such as, say, uh, those that are studying with Careful uh, Singh or the Ananda Marg or the um, fundamentalist Christian groups or um, the uh, Buddhist or Zen Buddhist groups. Uh, for the most part, uh, these structures come from without the community. That is, they either come through textual material, through uh, holy books, manuals, uh, all the way from very specific things, such as, say, the rules of St. Benedict or St. Ignatius, uh, the Buddhist um, shila, purification rules, from uh, some headquarters of the organization. This is the case with, say, the Guru Maharaji group or Integrated Yoga Institute. Uh, other uh, communities uh, which are not committed to a single tradition or lineage um, tend to have the order and organization and structure come from within the group and um, either uh, using visiting teachers or shared reading of and study of books or shared experiences that have been uh, often individually collected by the members in their studies and travels prior to entering into the community. Uh, Stephen Gaskin's farm would be an example of this kind of a, an undertaking which does not really honor a specific lineage other than uh, the attempt of a group of people to become conscious together. 
uh, now there are obvious assets and liabilities to these various kinds of communities, participation in these communities. Um, the ones that have the structure from without have um, a way of controlling the kinds of ego games that people get involved in when they live together closely. Uh, and there is a, a stabilizing influence which is often transmitted either through the abbot or guru of the group or through the uh, tapes or books that transmit the lineage. Uh, these scenes tend to develop a, a little bit of um, the guru says type uh, people. That is, it attracts a, an individual who often likes to be dependent on a somewhat authoritarian structure and uh, feels security in always knowing uh, where she or he is at. The more uh, exquisite and subtle of these um, lineage transmitting institutions have self-destruct mechanisms in them which uh, ultimately uh, uh, eject the uh, sadak or spiritual seeker uh, at the point where that dependency is no longer functional and that ejection occurs either through the spiritual practices which make the individual see the irrelevance of the institution or through uh, formal technical initiations and graduations uh, and other forms of expulsion or transfer, as it's called. The other kind of communities which don't have this uh, uh, lineage transmission structure uh, are more of a free-for-all, and they often, uh, uh, at worst, degenerate into uh, uh, just incredible neurosis on everybody's part. Uh, power struggles as to whose vision of the universe is um, uh, higher than someone else's. And uh, that often uh, is determined more by the charisma of the individuals involved than by the wisdom of the uh, um, individuals. At best, such communities uh, have a number of protective devices that they collaboratively agree to incorporate into their living style, such as group meditations, uh, silent days, uh, and structures of meeting and rotating directorships and so on to protect themselves from the tyranny of the ego. Uh, because it's very difficult when you are uh, uh, in the quicksand to, uh, all of you are in the quicksand to escape. And you can merely set up uh, the best set of rules that you collectively can come up with to um, optimize the possibility that the least caught person will be heard. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the best one I've come up with yet about these situations. Uh, the community that I'm quite familiar with, the Lama Foundation in New Mexico, um, which I visited a number of times and have been very close to spiritually, would be considered a spiritual educational community, um, which has its um, grounding in regular meditations 
in bringing in outside spiritual teachers uh, and in which everybody in the community participates in a intensive program, whether it be Zen Buddhism or Sufi training for a period of a week or two weeks or even three weeks. Uh, in addition, there are hermitages for retreats um, and there is a cross-fertilization with a number of other spiritual scenes throughout the world because the members of the community are encouraged really to go out and participate in various um, training programs and then to return and bring that richness to the community. What evolves in such a community is that the individuals that are the most stable members of such a community are attract, attracted um, differentially to different spiritual uh, groups. So that, for example, at Lama, some of the members are mainly connected with the Native American church, the Taos Pueblo of the Native American church, and they spend a lot of time with the uh, American Indians there. The, uh, others are very actively involved in the Sufi tradition and involved in Sufi dance and uh, uh, Sufi literature. Others are students of uh, Hasid uh, of the Kabbalah and study with uh, Zalman Shakhtar, a beautiful Hasid rabbi. Um, others are very attracted to Zen, and when Suzaki Roshi comes, they consider him their primary teachers. Others are attracted to uh, Tibetan Buddhism and uh, enjoy Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche as their primary teacher. Haridas Baba, uh, who was one of my teachers, spends time there, and there are many of them there that are very attracted to him. So that even though all of them participate in most of the programs, there are very marked individual differences in uh, which aspects are most meaningful to the, each individual. The liability of this is that you are really not sharing the intensive satsang or sangha or spiritual community of people doing the exact same practices as you are. And you have got to have a deeper philosophical connection with the other members of the community to recognize that even though our practices differ, the goal is one. And of course that even gets a little confusing when you're dealing between uh, primarily uh, dualistic uh, traditions and uh, primarily non-dualistic traditions. The assets uh, of uh, such variety within a single community is that uh, there is a intense cross-fertilization, there is uh, less of an in, uh, in tendency to get stuck in uh, a single method. Uh, often when you go to uh, communities that are very narrow in their practices, you see an awful lot of dry, tight people who seem quite caught in a practice and have lost the frame of reference or framework for to give that practice a more profound spiritual meaning. At this point, I could go into the economics of communes because I have been very uh, much interested as a participant and observer in what would be called the alternative culture, the economic, economics of it, uh, and uh, the way in which right livelihood, as the Buddhists call it, uh, has been achieved or not achieved in uh, these communities. And there's quite a difference between city communities and uh, uh, rural communities. 
with this regard. And uh, very few communities are economically stable based on production from within the community. The communities support themselves in generally in a variety of ways, ranging from uh, in the old days it was a common practice that they were pushers. That is less common nowadays. Um, but to um, crafts which they market in urban areas or in festivals, uh, publishing. Uh, now places like uh, Steve Gaskin's farm are developing uh, basic crops which are uh, paying crops and uh, that's moving towards a more uh, economic stable base although I don't think Steve's place is yet uh, economically totally independent of outside help. Some of the communes, especially the communities that are connected with it, a lineage uh, earn their livelihood through the transmission of the lineage, through running seminars and training institutes. Uh, for example, things like Arika or uh, uh, Tale of the Tiger or places like that. Of course, the city communities are quite a different matter and some of the rural ones as well. Uh, bec there, the livelihood often comes through the individuals going out to work at part-time or even full-time jobs. Um, it would be a common practice, say, in a uh, Guru Maharaji ashram in a city for maybe 60-70% of the people, maybe even, a, uh, well, in the Kripal Singh, everybody has to work, so everybody would have a job of some sort or another. Uh, but rather than spend the remainder of the tape uh, talking about the externals of communities, I'd rather uh, focus in on exactly what spiritual function communities play or what is the spiritual community uh, or why is it that people do band together out of a sense of spiritual urgency or need or purpose. Uh, in the past uh, oh, 15 years there has been uh, an increasing uh, malaise or um, sort of mild depression in this culture. Emotional. Uh, what the determinants of that are are probably much too complicated for us to consider at this moment. They were things like the uh, imminence of total destruction through the development of the atomic and then the hydrogen bomb, the, um, the affluence in the culture which showed people that even when you got what you wanted it wasn't enough and the media which projected that image in uh, huge color all over the world. Uh, the realization that education and technology was not a um, path, was not a path to happiness and fulfillment by itself. Uh, the increasing discomfort with the morality of the government in terms of its foreign policies and more recently, of course, its domestic policies. In the early 60s, we had the God is dead this kind of cynicism that goes along with the um, the hierarchy of the priest class composed of uh, scientists and psychiatrists. And adjustment became a, uh, a valued commodity, coping and adjustment. Uh, the despair or the depression attendant to this state of affairs, which was is kind of the 
obvious uh, the obvious uh, outcome of um, philosophical materialism in which when you're dead you're dead and so get it all while you can and then getting it all and then having it not be enough so that the justification for your life is empty a kind of despair uh, drove a lot of people in a lot of different directions in the 60s uh, and for a significant though small number of people it drove them into psychedelics uh, and into other kinds of uh, drugs the opiates and so on trying to seek a more either more gratification and more intense experience or more meaning to uh, to human existence others traveled to other cultures uh, such as the Far East Middle East Europe uh, South America uh, others left the highly uh, technological society and moved back into uh, the backlands where they could find uh, justification for their existence within a kind of frontier mentality where they could uh, justify uh, their lives merely by survival, which is uh, uh, getting enough wood and food and uh, shelter and clothing. Uh, somewhere in the midst of this, a process uh, is involved in which uh, the external forms of gratification start to lose their meaning a little bit and people turn within uh, and they start to look at deeper places in themselves either through despair um, or uh, through some form of awakening or opening the literature of the late 60s and early 70s started to abound with concerns for mysticism in uh, the East, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Sufism, Middle East. Uh, the Hasid movement uh, has started to come back into flower. Esoteric Christianity has uh, uh, become noticeable along with um, fundamental Christianity, which is not esoteric at all. Uh, this uh, turning within to a deeper or higher connection or reference group the spiritual community uh, occurred through all of the different vehicles I mentioned, through travels to the east, through drugs, through uh, dropping out. Uh, there wasn't any single path that determined that. At first it was a few and then uh, more and more of the cultural media started to take over the transmission of a new reference group uh, so that the Beatles first and Bob Dylan and, and followed by many, many uh, people in the rock movement and in the folk music movement uh, started to uh, make statements concerning this alternative reference group which was not based on the physical plane particularly it was a, a community of the spirit now in order to understand what this community of the spirit is um, if you just think of a cross and think that all of the reference groups we talked about up until now, uh, family, bowling club, nation, uh, religion, etc., are on a horizontal axis of the cross. And now we're starting to deal with the vertical axis uh, to understand how far out that is and how much you must stretch your definition of what constitutes a group 
let me say that the spiritual group, reference group, uh, exists over time and space in all directions. So that one begins to recognize members of one's group quite independent of geography and quite independent of time, that is whether that being is living in the present or not. So that one begins to experience a more intimate identity or family membership with, um, say, a Socrates or, uh, or a Plato or a Heraclitus or Chung Tzu or Lao Tzu or a Buddha or a Krishna or Hanuman, uh, Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, Hazrat Anayat Khan, Rumi, uh, Kabir, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, Saint John, uh, Brother Lawrence, um, the Pilgrim, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, Don Juan, uh, a more intimate relationship with these people than with uh, people in one's own uh, time and space uh, locus. Uh, it furthermore occurs that as one focuses into a deeper place in oneself, one perceives a deeper place in another individual. And this depth of perception leads to quite a shift in what would be called figure and ground. For example, when if you are preoccupied with your physical body, like either into uh, weightlifting or beauty or ugliness or deformity or something, you will be very preoccupied with other people's physical form. If, on the other hand, your primary concern is personality and you are aware of your own personality dynamics, you'll be inclined to see other people in terms of their personalities as the dominant theme. If you're primarily into astrology in yourself and you think of yourself as a Leo or a Sagittarius or an Aries, you'll be inclined to see other people as that way. In other words, which individual differences you focus upon. Like if you're balding like I am, years ago, I was very aware of who had hair and who didn't. Now that I look at a different place in other people, it is totally irrelevant whether they have hair or don't have hair or what color it is. Or, and as I've found a place in myself that has nothing to do with age, uh, I'm not even noticing any longer whether people are old or young. Uh, and as I've gotten into a place that isn't involved with whether I'm depressed or related or joyful or sad, I'm less inclined to label other people as manic depressive or paranoid schizophrenic or uh, psychopathic or what have you. Uh, as one goes deeper into oneself, one comes to the soul. One comes to the, uh, the essence. One comes to the doorway through to uh, a much different kind of identity than the one on which one has been functioning from the time of birth and which was transmitted through one's parents. Um, and when you begin to recognize uh, this new identity in yourself, simultaneously you begin to perceive it in other people. So that when you look into the eyes of another person from this space, you often not often, but now and then, look into the eyes of another being who is experiencing that same identity with soul, and it's as if you meet as uh, soul mates, or at least a soul meeting, 
in which all of the packaging of personality, of astrology, of body, are is merely packaging, and one, as it is, as it were, looks through the veil of this package from one to another, and there is the um, <laughs> rather delightful. Uh, interchange of uh, are you in there uh, yeah are you in there far out here we are uh, we're both uh, inside here and it's as if uh, it's like a Martian takeover it's as, uh, as if you're meeting another being who is almost masquerading as a human being but is in fact not terribly identified with their uh, uh, physical plane um, envelope if you will or temple or package and those that contact through the eyes defines now the spiritual community because it is really a community of souls. It is not a community of uh, men and women because in the world of souls there are no men's souls and women's souls. There are just soul souls. Uh, at this point, this uh, discussion gets a little farther out. And for those of you that who are not particularly versed in the mystic tradition in any religions or in terms of your own experience, uh, you may find uh, this part of our discussion a little less palatable than what we've had up until now. Uh, by the same token that you recognize another individual who, who identifies with and knows their own soul through eyes, through contact of eyes, so you also know it through listening to their speech or reading their books. And thus, the community of the spirit starts to exist among souls across time and space. And so you will find this incredible intimacy as if you are sharing an inside joke with somebody like Chuang Tzu or Lao Tzu or Baal Shem Tov or... Uh, etc., Hazrat Anayat Khan, and on and on. Uh, Jesus, Buddha, Zoroaster, uh, Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi. Once one has identified with this particular reference group, that is the community of the spirit, then where one is in physical time and space, who one's living with, what one is doing, in terms of livelihood and so on, becomes less and less relevant because the eggs are no longer totally in the basket of the physical plane. So one does what one needs to do to keep the body temple together and then one immerses oneself into the spiritual community. The vehicles for entering into the spiritual community are the various forms of what would be called yoga would be one way of approaching this, these different paths. And there is the bhakti path or the path of devotion, prayer, sacrifice. There is jnana yoga, the process of using the mind to beat the mind and of study. There is the uh, practices of karma yoga or the, uh, the offering the fruits of one's efforts up. It's a form of devotion, actually. Uh, there is uh, Dhyan Yoga, which became Chan and then Zen, which is uh, a technique of concentration, bringing the mind to one-pointedness, 
uh, along with a certain kind of insight or mindfulness that leads into samadhi or intense concentration trance states. Uh, there is tantra yoga. Uh, there are uh, uh, yogic forms that work with energy called kundalini yoga uh, and so on and so forth. From within this reference group of the spiritual community one looks out at each individual one meets as more or less conscious of their participation because one sees the spiritual community as involving all of at least all of mankind we'll maybe talk a little more about what else it involves in a moment and the individual differences one notices uh, revolve around the degree of awakeness or realization of one's predicament that is you look at somebody and see that they are busy identifying with their physical body. Um, recently, for example, I was visiting a man who has a very advanced stage of cancer. And he's been in extreme pain for maybe eight months. Such pain that uh, he's preoccupied with the pain. That is his reality and whether the doctors will give him strong enough medicine and whether he should jump out the window. And He's a professional scientist, trained scientist, in his uh, 60s, I guess. And when I tried to talk to him, it obviously wasn't going to do much to give him another reference group, another reality from which he could view his predicament. So I asked him if I could massage his feet. And as I was doing this, through the, this other contact, which was totally uh, kinesthetic through the skin, um, we entered a space together where he started to experience very intense bliss. And he said, where is the pain? The pain is all gone. And I said, no, the pain still exists, but it's at a different reality than the one you're in now. You've just shifted television channels, if you will, and you're in another place. And he said, this is the first time in eight months that I've had a moment free of pain. And I said, well, that I that had the pain is still around, but this is another part of the I. And this I doesn't have pain. It never had pain, nor will it ever have pain. And now the game is to break the identification that is consuming the one to the reality in which the pain exists and to develop an identification with this I uh, which can see the pain but which is not busy being caught in the experiencing of it. The game ultimately is not to deny the plane in which the pain exists but to live simultaneously in many planes. That, at that moment he was being introduced into the spiritual community, a community of beings who meet, as it were, in a different plane of reality. Uh, a few years ago, uh, the, in the West, the group of people that I would feel uh, most akin to were people between the ages of, say, uh, 12 and 18 or 20, uh, because they were the ones for whom, who had the least commitment to the existing cultural structure and were therefore more open to these changes in states of consciousness. Uh, now it seems to have spread, and I find that the or maybe I've gotten rid of that expectation. So now I find that people of all ages and all walks of life uh, 
uh, are available to the to relating on the domain of the spirit. As one enters into this spiritual community, you can't help but imagine what it would be like were everybody living in such a community. That is, everybody living within the sight of God, everybody living with the living spirit. Uh, because in these conditions, there is no them. Um, and uh, one is so little attached to the physical plane reality that one that sharing isn't any more discomforting than possessing <laughs> in fact uh, the possession at the expense of another uh, would be quite uh, uncomfortable not from a uh, guilt or social stigma but just from a sense of absurdity absurdity to understand the spiritual community is to realize that there is no form that is unique to the spirit. There is no particular action that a free being has to do. There is no, there are no rules to the game. But one's appreciation of the spirit makes the meaning of life so profoundly different that there is not an aspect of one's life that is unchanged by this growth. The meaning of every act from the most apparently trivial to the most profound is influenced by this new recognition of the deeper reality behind the facade that most of us have thought was what the game was about. For to tune into the flow, to realize the divine law, to begin to see the workings of karma, to even meet the beings in the cosmic hierarchy, and to plumb the depths beyond even those illusions, to come into the light of God, gives, gives a depth of meaning paradoxically mixed with a recognition of the total irrelevancy of the human melodrama. To live with that paradox, to live with the paradox of the unbearable suffering that one now identifies with through one's identification with the human condition, simultaneous with the incredible bliss and ecstasy that comes from being at one with the universe to live with the one and the two simultaneously. This paradox is so profound and one's horizon so expanded by this inner work
that ultimately one can only fall on one's knees. In awe, in praise, in love to that which lies behind all of the realities of form, be they physical, astral, causal. But to be a free member of the spiritual community means not only to look upward into the light, but to look downward as well to the human condition. For if looking up, for if joining the spiritual community makes one insensitive to the physical plain sufferings of our fellow human beings, then we are seeing but an aspect of God. For the caring, for the genuine caring for our fellow beings on this plane, along with remembering to look up. For without that looking up, one merely gets caught in do-gooding and more suffering. It's that combination of looking up and looking down of being without attachment in the Buddhist pure mind sense and at the same moment having the total involvement that allows you to share the suffering of Christ on the cross daily, daily anew in all of the suffering of the world around you with your heart wide open and the full blast of that suffering burning through you that paradox of attachment and non-attachment, the paradox of heart and mind, it is in the space which transcends all of these paradoxes, which incorporates all of them. It is in that space that we meet as a spiritual community. It's in that space that we come to know ourselves as the true God. May I wish you all peace, the deepest peace in your hearts, a peace of such depth that in that quiet, soft light, you can begin to hear and to know your own soul, your own divinity, your own membership, family of God. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.